0: Welcome to episode number 68 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. Reformation Roundtable is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church, which is located in Lewis County, Washington. We are a Reformed and Evangelical church here in Centralia, Washington, and we are excited to bring you the audio of our Lord's Day service that took place on October 10th of 2021. Christ Covenant Church practices what is known as Covenant Renewal Worship. And so, in addition to the sermon, there are several exhortations and prayers that happen prior to the sermon. And so, all of that audio is presented to you here. We hope you enjoy the audio, and we hope you come and join us for Lord's Day worship on this coming Lord's Day Sunday. Thank you very much, and enjoy the sermon.
1: All right, our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from Amos chapter 5, verse 8. He made the Pleiades and Orion, he turns the shadow of death into morning, and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. In our to the world to the word, sorry, in our to the word Bible reading challenge, hopefully everyone's doing that. This week we came to the book Leviticus. It's everyone's favorite book of the Bible. In chapter 2 and in verse 13, we read the following. Every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Physical salt was a key component in our worship during this time. Salt, as as a preservative, symbolized the preserving power of God to keep his everlasting covenant with us. Salt as savory goodness symbolized that the obeying of the will of God makes everything we do and ultimately everything Christ would accomplish savory and delicious to God. God is clear. Every offering, every sacrifice must be offered with salt. Jesus picks up on this theme in Mark chapter 9. In verse 49, after telling his followers to be relentlessly violent and casting out sin in their lives, Jesus takes the requirements of Leviticus, Leviticus 2 and tells us that Everyone will be salted with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Jesus gives us a striking command to have salt in ourselves. Have you ever considered, when seeking to obey Jesus, this command in particular? How exactly does one go about having salt in oneself? Thankfully, Jesus tells us the answer in the same breath have peace with one another. And having peace with one another, we are obeying the command of God that every offering to Him be accomplished with salt. And since we have been exhorted to present our own bodies to God as living sacrifices, we also know that our lives and our bodies will also be seasoned with both fire and salt. As we seek to have peace with one another, let us do it in faith, knowing that we can expect fiery trials to season and transform us and to living sacrifices that will ascend as a pleasing aroma to our God. This will remind us of our need to confess our sin. Scripture says in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ.
0: If you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I did uh, accidentally text Joe the wrong passage, but it's not far off. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, Christ Covenant Church, it really is a blessing to be back with you uh, today. Uh, This church has a, a special place in my heart. Not only because uh, we had the opportunity to uh, grow in fellowship with Joe and family uh, over the year leading up to the establishing of this church, but I have uh, for a long time just had a, a heart for uh, Lewis County, specifically the Centralia and Chehalis area. I spent a, a good amount of time in the public schools down here from 2012 to 2014. I spent a year as a long-term sub at Centralia Middle School. And uh, I just really love this area, I love the people, and I'm so excited to see this church uh, being established here to uh, minister to the community and be a faithful presence in this city. Um, so it's with that said, it's a great joy to be here. I hope that uh, God would use me mightily to uh, minister to you guys and help you grow in your faith. Uh, so with that said, let us pray. Gracious Father... We have been given such a great treasure in having the revelation of your word. May we never forget what a great gift it is to us. May we cling to it. May we treasure it in our hearts. And as we hear your word proclaimed, may we listen to it with open hearts and open minds as we hear from you as our loving Father. Uh, Strengthen us today. In the hearing of your word, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning's sermon is titled, More Righteous Than Pharisees. And it was this past year I realized that I kind of like the Pharisees. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with who the Pharisees are, uh, they were basically Jesus' worst enemies during his earthly ministry. And they embodied everything that people hate, about religious people they were smug they were condescending they were uptight and they were overly consumed with your business more specifically they were jewish religious leaders teachers and scribes who were very influential in first century jewish culture sure and oh yeah i almost forgot they're the ones who were responsible for jesus death So you might say, you kind of like these guys? Doesn't seem like there's much there to like. But it was this past year when I was in a seminary class studying the intertestamental period, which is 400 years of history that is contained in that blank page between your Old and New Testaments, uh, between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first of the New Testament, Matthew. And what we're really talking about is about 400 years of history between the Testaments of Scripture. But in studying that period, especially as we come closer to the life of Christ, we realize that the Pharisees played a very important role in the life of Israel during that time. And on paper, they sound pretty good. They were the theological conservatives of their day. They were the defenders of truth. And as I study the Pharisees, the thing that drew me to them were there all these things that I found that I have in common with the Pharisees, and what I think are good and biblical things. The Pharisees sought a reverent and rightly ordered worship. The Pharisees had a high view of Scripture. The Pharisees desired desired to uphold the traditions of their fathers. They opposed the liberal theology of the Sadducees. They had a predestinarian big God theology. And they had a system of church government akin to Presbyterianism. I could go on, but I think you guys get the point. In the historical picture, they were the good guys. They were the ones who held the ground for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But as I found myself liking these guys, as I found myself relating to these guys who I know from the testimony of Scripture, were for the most part Jesus' worst enemies during his lifely ministry. I had to ask myself, if I was a first century Jew, would I have been an enemy of Jesus? More pointedly, I had to ask myself, am I an enemy of Jesus now? And it's with all this in my mind that I approached Matthew 5.20 in preparing this morning's sermon. Addressing Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees. So as we consider this verse this morning, there's one question we'll be asking of this text, which is, what is the righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, which Jesus demands of all those who would follow after him? And we'll be really breaking this question down into three parts. We'll look at what is the nature of this righteousness which Jesus speaks about? What are characteristics of this righteousness And what is the purpose of this righteousness? So in answering the question, what is this righteousness of which Jesus speaks? We'll be looking at its nature, its characteristics, and its purpose. So let's begin by the nature of the righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, This is a commonly cited passage, but in my experience, there's quite a bit of confusion around it. Mainly because of mistaken ideas of what Jesus means with the phrase, your righteousness. What is the righteousness of what Jesus is speaking? So I'm gonna, we're going to start by looking at two positions that I think are not what Jesus is talking about before we land on the nature of what Jesus is talking about and the nature of this righteousness. And the first is what I call meritorious righteousness. And I have to be clear. This is not what I think it means. I, I teach math, and sometimes we give—I give examples of what not to do. But there's always a few kids who space out when I said this is not how it goes. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, I see them doing the very thing I said not. So just be clear. This is not what I think that this uh, Jesus is speaking about in this righteousness, a meritorious righteousness. So here, here's what this view is, and it's pretty uh, common, at least a, an initial reading of it. It's a uh, In this view, the Pharisees were pretty righteous. They knew their Bibles, they had their finances in order, everyone looked up to them, and if if you asked someone in the Jewish community, hey, who are the most righteous people in town, they'd point to a Pharisee. And in this view, the meritorious view, the Pharisees were pretty good, but Jesus is saying that if you want to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven, you need to even be better Than the Pharisees. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are pretty righteous, but you have to even be more righteous than them. You need to be super good, even more than the Pharisees. But there are two significant problems with reading the passage this way. The first is that it buys into the Pharisees' false view that righteousness is merely about externalities, that your intentions and your motives don't matter. And we'll hear more about this in a minute. The second problem with this view is that it also buys into the false idea that God's justice, that God's favor can be won by doing enough good deeds. As long as, and as long as you've done more good than evil at the end of days, you will pass God's judgment and get into heaven. So again, this is not what we think this passage is saying. And it, So in short, this could be called the legalistic view. And that if we do enough good, more than the Pharisees, we can get in on God's good graces. But the second view is one that the idea is a good one. The idea is a biblical one, but it's wrongly attributed to this text. So we need to get this idea that you can have a good and true biblical doctrine or teaching, but it doesn't mean that it's from the text that you're looking at. You understand that basic distinction? And that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to show you a good biblical teaching, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ, just not from this verse. So the second position that is not from this verse is uh, uh, the imputed righteousness. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. So here's what the view is. This view basically agrees with the premises of the first view, that you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven but that you can't. It's impossible. Try as hard as you may, but you can't get much better than them. That Jesus is here establishing an impossible standard so that when you come to see the impossibility of it, you realize that there's no righteousness in yourself and that you need a foreign righteousness that is a righteousness of Christ. And that's how you become more righteous than the Pharisees. Because in Christ, you have a righteousness applied to you that is truly greater than that of the Pharisees. so let me be clear. I believe that the Bible does teach about this idea of an imputed righteousness that is that the, the righteousness of Christ can be apply, is applied to those who believe in him, and that on the day of judgment, those who believe in Christ will be declared righteousness not because of any deed of their own but because, but purely because of the perfect. Work of Christ in His life, death, resurrection, and His ascension. Second Corinthians five twenty one very clearly uh, states this teaching, biblical teaching, in an appointed way. It reads that for our sake He made Him to become sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So I I use the phrase imputed, the imputation of uh, Christ's righteousness or some will extend it the imputation of the active obedience of Christ or we could just think of this as, as the righteousness of Christ which is applied to those who believe. But like I said, that's not primarily what I think or fundamentally what this verse, Matthew 5.20, is talking about even though that's a good and biblical theme. And here's why we need to insist that this passage is not about imputed righteousness. To read this as talking about that is to treat this verse in isolation as though the surrounding context has nothing to say about what Jesus means in the, this verse. However, if you keep reading, if you go on to Matthew 21 and following and through into the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus is directly attacking the views of the Pharisees. He indicates this with the phrase, you have heard it sa- that it was said. This language was shorthand for the teaching that had been given, the oral traditions that had been passed down by the teachers of Israel, the Pharisees. If you follow Jesus line of thought, he's not pointing the unattainability of righteousness which wins our favor with God, but he's pointing to the need for personal righteousness for those who would follow after him. And that is what I believe Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 5:20. Jesus is speaking about the need for personal righteousness. That is, it's not it's not about meritorious righteousness in somehow earning God's favor, which would be unbiblical. It's not about imputed righteousness, which is a biblical idea, just not in this passage. But it is about God's requirement for how we live our lives. And as I mentioned above, this is most clearly seen in the following verses of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get into our second question addressing the characteristics of righteousness. But before we get to that, I I need to say that if there's any criticism of the second view, which I said is a biblical idea, it's that... Some people stress the doctrine of imputed righteousness so much that they are nervous to speak about personal righteousness at all. They're, they're nervous to think that, someone, that there would be something intrinsic in a person that would be righteous. And I think we need to not be timid about that. Because the Bible does talk about people, those who are in covenantal relationship with God, as righteous. Yes, that righteousness will never be enough for the day of judgment. Yes, that, ju- that righteousness never wins our favor with God. But we, we can speak of Christians as being righteousness because, in, because of their deeds. Because that's the language of scripture. And though a lot of people who are, who are nervous to talk about this and that all they ever want to talk about is the righteousness of Christ, I don't think these people would ever deny that we are called to righteous living. But we need to be careful. We can't shy away from the demands of Scripture and that Christians are called to righteous living because this, this doesn't have to diminish the righteousness we have in Christ. Let's just survey a few other Scripture passages that just make the call an absolute necessity to personal righteousness in Scripture. I'm going to just go through them. I'm not going to give you enough time necessarily to turn to each one because I have four of them here. But Matthew seven twenty one says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. It's the absolute necessity of following Christ in our lives, in our actions. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says, or do you not know that the, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will enter the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19-21 reads, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Hebrews 12:14 Strive for the peace with strive for peace with everyone for the holiness without which no one and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hopefully the point is clear. The Bible is abundantly clear that personal righteousness is necessary. It isn't meritorious. It doesn't win our favor with God. Only righteousness which comes through faith in Christ can do that. But it is necessary. And if I have lost any of you in this discussion, I apologize. There's part of me that goes back and forth in using uh, words and phrases like imputed righteousness. I know sometimes our brains just go... As soon as we hear like a word, we don't know our phrase, that seems intimidating. Not everybody there is, and maybe this is part of me working with middle schoolers who get so easily discouraged with stuff that I, that I have to be very careful with kind of how I introduce language to them. But if the language of imputed righteousness versus personal righteousness just seemed like word games to you, let me try to clarify. I'm just going to put it as succinctly as possible and then give you an image that might help with this. Imputed righteousness is the righteousness of Christ applied to those who believe. Without this, no one will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment. Personal righteousness is about your life and the extent to which it conforms to the law of God. And these two ideas don't contradict one another, but they work together. And though our passage is about the second, about personal righteousness today, I want to be very clear because of how often people use this verse to talk about imputed righteousness. So the image, to maybe help. Uh, If you're taking notes, you might want to draw this out. And I want us to imagine a circle, but not a circle that's uh, just stationary, but a moving circle with arrows going like this. And if you put imputed righteousness at the top of this circle, that is the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, and put down at the bottom of that circle, personal righteousness. You'll see that imputed righteousness always leads to personal righteousness. Imputed righteousness declares us righteousness, so it says be righteous. Imputed righteousness reminds us of what Christ did and what what it cost him to pay for the price of sin, so that should serve us to no longer be in sin. And there are a multitude of ways, so many ways that imputed righteousness always leads to you living your life in a way that conforms to God's law. But personal right it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just go here. It goes all the way around. Because as we all know, as we strive for righteousness in our own lives, we fail. We become discouraged. We sin. And we know that no matter how hard we strive, that personal righteousness will never be sufficient to stand before a perfectly just and holy God. And it always points us back to our need for imputed righteousness. So we see that these two Two notions of righteousness always work together and they feed into one another. And you take one out and you, you, the whole thing crumbles. So, if you're still struggling with these ideas, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you, maybe point you to some resources that would help you think more clearly about this. But hopefully, we understand the basic distinction there, and we'll be spending the rest of our time this morning talking about personal righteousness. And what that is. So what are the characteristics of this personal righteousness? This righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So, as we look at this, we're we're fundamentally going to have to determine how is this, this righteousness of what Jesus speaks different from that taught and lived by the scribes and the Pharisees. And luckily, Jesus hasn't left us stranded. The section on the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5:17 through6-18, offers at least four characteristics of righteousness which help us to see what Jesus is speaking about when he says, "the righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees." We will see that true righteousness conforms to the law of God. True righteousness is of the heart. true righteousness, exceeds, uh, true righteousness obeys to the full extent possible. And true righteousness is for God. So, true, first, true righteousness conforms to the law of God. The first thing that we notice, if, if we look at what Jesus is teaching on righteousness in this segment of the Sermon Amount Mount, is that it is, he's not departing from or doing away with the law of God. But that true righteousness is first and foremost conformity to the law of God. This is explicitly seen in chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, where we read, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. On the surface, this seems to be one area where the Pharisees were correct, at least on paper. They recognized the ultimate authority of the law, and they highly esteemed it. But what we will see as we move forward is that they had a tendency to recast the law according to their own liking and to twist it according to their own purposes. But we also, we have areas where we get caught up with the category of law. And some of this is due to fuzzy thinking or uncertainty as to what the scriptures actually teach about the law. And there's a couple of these that I'd like to address. First is I Some people read statements like this from the Apostle Paul. You are no longer under law, but under grace. And they misread that as saying, yeah, yeah, the law has nothing to do with my Christian life. I'm no longer under the law. I can't do a full treatment of what Paul's getting at that verse, but I would just say, if you think that Paul is completely casting out the law, as having any relevance for the Christian life, you need to read read Paul. You can't, get, you can't get far from reading Paul without realizing he's clearly not saying that there's no place for the law in the Christian life. There certainly is. He, he's continuously uh, exhorting the churches to righteous living and reminding them of the call of God on their life. He speaks highly of the law. He, he does talk about how the law isn't sufficient. And certainly, if the law was sufficient, there wouldn't have been a need for Christ. But it doesn't mean that we do in, away with it. it doesn't mean that there's an imperfection of the law. In fact, Paul in another place tells us that, that if there's any problem, the problem lies within us. So don't dismiss the law because of a single verse taken out of context where Paul says you're no longer under law but under grace. Other people get caught up because they, they hear law and all of a sudden they think of the severity of the Old Testament laws. You guys are reading through Leviticus right now? Is that right? Okay. So, you know what I'm talking about. It's severe. It's intense. Not, not, not just the reading of it. I mean, that, that, that can be intense, just reading through it, plowing through it, trudging through all the details. That's not even living it. Some people say law. They think of all, all of the most difficult aspects of that, all the cleansing rites, and... They want to kind of say, yeah, yeah, the law is passed, the law is fulfilled. And certainly that's true about parts of the Old Testament law. So when, when we're talking about law this morning, we're not talking about every, every detail of the Old Testament law, but not because there was an insufficiency in it, not because it was bad, it was from God, but because parts of the Old Testament law were fulfilled. They've accomplished their purpose and they no longer are binding on those who would follow after God. Some of them were ceremonial and were fulfilled in Christ. The most obvious of these would be the sacrifices. The temple sacrifices, the tabernacle sacrifices. But there's a whole host of things under the Old Testament ceremonial law that pointed to Christ. This past year I read through a little book called God's Mobile Home with my kids. And it was all about the tabernacle. And what the guy did was he he walked you through the tabernacle as though you were this Jewish child who was being taught... All the different, um, being essentially walked through the tabernacle and being shown what all the different pieces were. What this author then would do is explain how each one of these things pointed to the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, we don't need these physical external things that are really signs pointing to the Messiah because he has come. They were fulfilled, and that's what Jesus talks about fulfilling the law. Other laws in the Old Testament were civil laws for the nation of Israel. Now, the Old Covenant, God worked through his people as a nation, relatively geographically settled in a place centered around the tabernacle, later the temple. And these people were uh, organized as a nation state. With the coming of Christ, God has now chosen to disperse his people among every tribe, tongue, and nation, that we would be interspersed in the nations of the world. And so, therefore, since we're not organized as a, his church is not organized now as a political body, the, we don't have the need for these laws which pertain directly to that. Now, it doesn't mean that the Old Testament civil laws are irrelevant. There's a great amount of wisdom in them. The Westminster Confession talks about the general equity of them, and I, I know you guys like Doug Wilson around here, and so he, he calls himself a general equity theonomist, okay? so because he really thinks that there's a lot of wisdom to be drawn from the Old Testament laws, and it's kind of a debated topic, which I'm not going to say anything more about, other than I think even someone like Doug Wilson would agree that there was a specific function for those laws in, in Israel, which at least if you're going to still try to apply them today, they apply in a different way. I didn't. That was. I just departed from my notes, and I did what I shouldn't have done because I should not have breached that topic. But I will say, if you have any questions about theonomy or general equity theonomists, go to Joe. Go to Joe. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna answer any of these questions. Okay, afterward, I'll I'll talk to you later about imputed righteousness. But don't ask me about theonomy. But in addition to this idea of uh, misunderstanding how the Bible talks about law. There's a general squeamishness in evangelicalism in our day about the idea of law. It seems that many people can't think of law without thinking of legalism. And this is a shame. It's not the attitude of Scripture. And actually, just this morning, as part of my Bible reading, I've tried to spend less time on my phone. I've shut off email. I used to, the first thing I would do in the morning is check my phone. So, what I've done is program it to where a psalm pops up on my phone at six o'clock every morning. So that can be the first thing filling my mind before I look at anything else, read any emails, check any texts. And this morning it was Psalm 1. Let's just think about, and this is a well-known psalm. I'm guessing that many of you in here maybe even have Psalm 1 memorized. But let's remind ourselves what Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3 say about the law. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Notice, it doesn't just talk about his mind, it talks, it's talking about the heart. There's an affection, not just a begrudging submission to it, but a delight in In the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water. That yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. Christ covenant church. Don't fall into the error of being ashamed of God's law. It is our guide. It is our standard of righteousness. And if you find that you have adopted less than a biblical view of the law of God. Repent and take time to meditate on it, to delight in it, and its goodness as a gift of God to you. But true righteousness is also of the heart. In Matthew 5, 21-30, Jesus shows that true righteousness is a matter of the heart, and in this section, Jesus addresses two sins which are perennial, we are perennially tempted to excuse in ourselves. Murder and adultery. It's interesting and I just have to say, is that I'm going to be working through a big chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to be necessarily going verse by verse. I'm assuming a, a fair level of familiarity with the general teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if that's not you, I apologize for going through it quickly. We're talking about, uh, really, Matthew's chapter 5 and 6. And I'd encourage you to spend some time just meditating on, what, on those teachings of Jesus in that passage. But here, where Jesus speaks about true righteousness being of the heart, he gives murder and adultery as an example. And it's interesting that these are two sins which, when considered in their most literal and outward form, they are far from the sins that good, upstanding Christians fall into. They're the sins that we think of, oh, the really bad people commit those sins, I would never. But Jesus is showing that such a reading of these commands, to only focus on the most overt and outward offenses of them, is superficial. Superficial. To truly understand both of these sins, one must understand that they both, adultery and murder, are first and foremost sins of the heart. Adultery is the sin of lust, outwardly manifested. Murder is the sin of unjust anger and full fruition. And this applies to all sins. To see any sin as primarily being about external actions rather than the intentions of the heart is to miss the Bible's teaching in this area. Some have called this a new ethic, or the ethic of Jesus, or a, a new reading of the law to focus on the heart rather than the external actions. They say, in the Old Testament, it was all about what you did. In the New Testament, you get pushed further into the heart. But that's just not the case. The Old Testament is abundantly clear that God cares about the heart. Deuteronomy 6, 4-6, through 6, another well-known passage from the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay? You see that? The Old Testament is not... There's not this division of Old Testament concerned about actions. The New Testament is concerned about their heart. It's there. Just to prove... To drive this home, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. It's not a new reading of the law. It's how it was always supposed to be read. It was the Pharisees who brought in this notion that all that mattered was your outward conformity to it. But there's a t- tendency in our time to pit heart obedience versus law obedience. Obedience just becomes all about intentions. This is one other way that people will dismiss the law it's about their intentions. So, a Christian business owner uh, is cutting corners in their business, not being honorable in the way that he is running his operation, but he justifies it, saying, well, by cutting these corners, I'm saving money, and by saving money, I'm allowed to pay, I can pay my employees more. My intentions are good. I don't need to be giving more money to the government. I'd rather be giving it to my employees. <laughs> and while we can agree with the sentiment, right? We can agree with the sentiment there. What does God's law call us to? God's law calls us to pay our taxes. God's law calls us to be in submission to the governing authorities. Talk about another controversial issue I shouldn't be talking about. But we can't deny that fundamentally, whether or not we think that there are caveats in the current moment, which may require civil disobedience, we certainly can't deny that the scriptures do tell us to submit to our governing authorities to pay our taxes. And this is just one example where, where we have to be careful that we don't pit heart obedience against what God's word calls us to, as though our intentions can somehow justify violating God's law because in our mind, we think that our hearts are in the right place. The truth is, heart and obedience and law and obedience go together doesn't mean we don't have to wrestle through difficult issues certainly our current moment is really forcing us to think really through what the scriptural says and what might be the limits of that but our standard is ultimately the word of god not just what i feel or what i think is the best of intentions so the third characteristic of this righteousness of which jesus speaks is that this true right righteousness obeys to the fullest extent possible uh, we see that the Pharisees and many people in time, and honestly, each one of us here knows this experience of just asking, what is the least amount that I have to do to fulfill this command? We, we hear something about giving or loving difficult people, and we think, oh, haven't I done enough? But true righteousness always strives to, to obey what God has called us to to the fullest extent possible. And this is what Jesus addresses in Matthew five, thirty eight through forty-eight, where he addresses two areas where it's all too easy to settle for the lowest level of obedience justice and mercy. In verses thirty eight to forty two, Jesus challenges the prevailing understanding of eye for eye justice. The idea that sinful actions should receive consequences that match the crime is good and biblical. However, the Pharisees had demonstrated how people can easily use that to go for the minimum amount necessary when confronted with injustice. Similarly, verses 43 to 48 show that loving others, and don't we all think that we do that so well, is much more than loving those who are easy to love. It's much more than just loving our friends. It's much more than loving our families. It's much more than just being a nice person. Jesus is so clear that. Our call to love extends to the most difficult to love, not just to the most difficult to love, even to our very enemies. The underlying idea in both of these teachings, however, seems to be that we're all too easily attempt to fulfill God's law in the easiest and lowest form. But God's desire is that we would seek the fullest obedience possible. True righteousness seeks full obedience to God's law. And lastly, last of the four characteristics of true righteousness, and these are just four, I mean, there's a lot more that if we continued into the Sermon on the Mount, we could see that there's more that Jesus would say, but these seem to be the four that most directly relate to the Pharisees. And so the last one is true righteousness is for God. If we stopped our discussion with the heart in full obedience, we may be missing the most significant aspect of true righteousness— for true righteousness must ultimately be from a heart that is set on pleasing God. Jesus confronts this tendency to be more concerned with what man thinks than what God thinks in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, when he speaks about acts of charity, fasting, and prayer being done before man instead of God. And this is what really the, the Pharisees were so well known for and which gave so many people this impression that the Pharisees were very righteous people. And in these verses, um, we see that Jesus' great concern is that we engage in pious acts, prayer, fasting, worship, reading scripture, not to please God, but to be seen by men. And Jesus rebukes those who would perform these deeds to be seen by men, and even says that they have received their reward in whatever praise that they receive from men. And he's ultimately showing that obedience to be seen by men, to please man, is not true obedience. That's not righteousness. Your intentions matter, and it needs to be to be seen by God. And I was thinking about this, like, what's, what's really so wrong about having other people see our good deeds? Like, I think there's part of us that, that gets it. It seems uh, contrived. It doesn't seem genuine. It doesn't seem sincere. It's like, hey, look at me, but I'm just doing this because you're watching me. And then the implication is that as soon as you go away, or as soon as you're not there, I'm going to turn around and start doing something else. And I think, certainly think that the hypocrisy of doing things to be seen by man is part of why it's, um, it falls short of God's righteous standard. But there's something much deeper to it, to being seen by men, to be, praised, to be receiving praise from men for our good deeds. And that's because, that is because the person who has done that has forgotten that their good deeds are to God and from God. Our good deeds are not so that we can get praise. Our good deeds are to meant to be to praise to the one who created us. Okay. We are not doing this for people, our good things for people. We are doing it for God. And as soon as you start doing it to be seen, where does the praise go? To yourself. And you're missing the point. Because our lives are to be uh, lived as living sacrifices to God. To be for him. But our righteousness, anything that we do, is also comes from God. We do not stir up the ability to be righteous from within ourselves. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, transforming us more and more into conformity to the image of Christ day by day. And as soon as we start doing these things to be seen by others, again, we're, we're claiming for ourselves something which belongs to God. We're doing it as though As though this is something for me, as though I deserve praise, as though I I deserve any kudos for my righteousness. So we've seen that true righteousness is, uh, is based on the law of God, that it's of the heart, that it seeks full obedience, and that it is to God. And my guess is, for those of you who have been in church for a while, who those of you who have been raised reading your Bibles, that none of this is new. But it is a, a temptation to become so acquainted with these notions that we grow dull in it. Yeah, 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 I know, the Sermon on the Mount. But don't stop striving, people. Don't, don't just become numb to it and be like, yeah, that's what I've heard. Keep striving, God doesn't require perfection in you, but he does require striving. And if you feel that you're burdened, remember, your righteousness does in Christ. Remember, again, imputed righteousness and personal righteousness. You don't stand b- before God on your own merit, but you should constantly be, that should be constantly moving you back and stirring you towards personal righteousness. And as soon as you feel condemned or overly burdened with your guilt, remember your imputed righteousness and may it stir you on. To live the righteousness, which is greater than that of the Pharisees. So, our last part. We remember we're trying to answer this question: What is the righteousness which exceeds that of the Pharisees? We've seen that it's a personal righteousness, and we've seen four characteristics of it. But what is the purpose of this true righteousness? And it's in working through the text in Matthew five twenty this past week that the most difficult part for me was the statement: "You will never enter the kingdom of heaven." How does this bar us from the kingdom of heaven if, if, if my standing before God on the day of judgment is based on the righteousness of Christ? And it's not that I've never thought through this before. My, my, I could give you a theological answer from, the, from Louis Burkoff or any theology or from the Westminster Confession, and I could probably point you to some verses as well. Not probably, I could. But what does Jesus, we always need to be careful that we're reading the verses. What does this verse mean? What is Jesus getting at? In and in a superficial reading could appear that when he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, as though that there is this works component in ourselves that allows us to stand before God. But that said, I think that there, uh, we should be able to see uh, what Jesus is getting at with just a few considerations. And the first and foremost of these is that the Pharisees weren't righteous. It's not that the Pharisees, if this is the scale of righteousness, that the Pharisees were kind of here in the middle, and we just need to be above that line. That would be talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees as being measured in quantity. So it says more righteous than the Pharisees, so we need to have a bar that goes a little bit higher. We need to remember, the Pharisees were down here. They hadn't even entered into the scale of righteousness. They completely missed what biblical true righteousness was. And so, in that sense, it seems to be thinking that Jesus isn't so much thinking of a scale as he's thinking of more of a quality. Either you're in or you're out. Those who are out are out. Those who are in haven't attained it perfectly, but they but they at least have grasped by the power of the Holy Spirit the basic quality of biblical righteousness and that you're continuing to grow in it. And if you haven't even had, the, had the, the most basic fruit of righteousness, then that just displays that you're not of God and that you're not part of the kingdom of heaven. I think we could re- almost rephrase it like this. Now that we understand that the Pharisees weren't righteous, that they actually used their displays of righteousness as a way of rejecting the law of God, think about what Jesus' statement like this. I think we maybe have less of a difficulty thinking, what if Jesus says to this? If you reject the law of God like the Pharisees do, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you reject the law of God like the Pharisees do, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And there are two basic reasons why this is the case. Again, it's not meritorious, but what did Jesus say? Must re- repent and believe. How can you ever repent of your actions, of your sinfulness, if you don't understand what true righteousness is? And secondly, those who have repented, those who have turned to Christ, have been filled with the Spirit of God, and there will be fruit of righteousness. For various people, it will display itself to different degrees, but the redeemed heart will show fruits of true righteousness. So I opened this sermon today with my statement on having kind of admitting that I, there's part of me that likes the Pharisees or has grown to like the Pharisees in my historical study of them. And I came to the question, am I an enemy of Jesus? Well, I think to answer that question, we really just have to consider what was the error of the Pharisees? They had a false understanding of righteousness. They reinterpreted the law according to their own standards, not of the heart. They tried to minimize what was required of obedience. And ultimately, God wasn't part of the picture when they thought of what true righteousness was. So what do we need? How could could we distill all of that's been said? What is this righteousness of which Jesus speaks? Well, true righteousness is a God-centered conformity to God's law. If we ignore God's law, we have remade God in our own image. If we distort our understanding of God's law, we remake the law in our image after our own liking. So are we enemies of God? Are we Pharisees? Am I a Pharisee? Are you a Pharisee? Examine your heart. Examine what your standard righteousness? Have you twisted God's law? Have you missed the picture? Have you excluded God from your picture of righteousness? Have you grown lazy or apathetic in your striving for righteousness? Have you forgotten God in your striving of it? Have you forgotten that ultimately, our, we are all—all wor- all of our works, all of your righteous deeds—are for His glory and His glory alone, and not for your own. Christ Covenant Church, we need the mercy of God. We need his grace. But by his grace, and by his Holy Spirit, you can be righteous. And by his work in your life, you can be more righteous than a Pharisee. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I plead, please do not let us fall into the the pits and into the traps which the Pharisees fell they thought they knew you they knew they had your word but they thought they knew you and they did not what a horrifying thought what a horrifying thought to think that we could fall into the same trap being so close to the kingdom of heaven but at the very same time so far away from it father protect us from this keep us Help us to see the true righteousness which you require. Help us to strive for it. Help us to not twist your word according to our own liking, but to see, see you at the center of it. See you as the way in which we need to understand your word. To see you as the reason and the purpose and the source of our conformity to it. We need your grace. We need your spirit in our lives. May we take comfort in the promises of Scripture. May we take comfort and joy and delight in the law of your word. May we cherish it in our hearts, knowing that all is of grace and all is to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: It's now with great privilege that we come to the Lord's table. What is the most important truth that matters to you? And remember that truth is not relative. I don't have my truth and you have your truth. There is just truth. Jesus said that he is truth. And we are gathered here in his name at his table because he is the the definition of truth. So back to the question at hand is what is the most important truth that matters to you? Here at the table, the answer to this question comes into focus. The truth that matters the most is that Jesus loves me, and he loves you. While every truth belongs to God, the reality that Jesus loves his people is one of the most, if not the most important truth that we can believe. We are seated at the table of the Lord because Jesus loves us. He walked each day in victory. We walk each day in victory because Jesus loves us. We have hope in this life and in the life to come because Jesus loves us. Jesus tells us that he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest himself to me. We actually just sang about this in that last hymn on Even Down to Old Age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, changeable love. During our Lord's Day worship, there is no point in the service where the truth that Jesus where the truth that Jesus love is more evident. Jesus has given his body and blood to be broken and shed for his people because he loves us as a husband loves his bride. Jesus laid down his life for us because he loves you and me. Remember and believe this truth today and always and your life will be forever changed by his spirit. For all who belong to Jesus and bear his name, we come to the feast of love to be fed and loved by your king. So we come and welcome to Jesus. All those who have been baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus, we welcome to come. The charge is this, seek to obey, seek to obey the law because that God gave it and he is good. Seek righteousness as God commands us to be righteous so that we might display God's good work in us. The benediction is actually from number six, as you might recognize, even though it doesn't say that. So the benediction now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you.